Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to know you're listening to and enjoying our shows. Our numbers are up for 1001 Stories Network. At last check, we were doing about 370,000 unique listens per month, and we're listened to and enjoyed worldwide. I'm grateful to you for sharing our show with others and for sending us reviews when you can. Thank you. We have a lot planned for the coming weeks. And I'll give you an update at the end of this episode, plus share some recent reviews with you. History has all kinds of side stories. We run into them all the time here at 1001 Heroes while we're researching. And I take notes that end up written on the outsides of file folders, on sticky notes, on calendars, and sometimes in my wallet. Did you know that the Siege of Vienna in 1683 is credited for giving us two of our favorite breakfast items? Most people believe that the croissant is a French invention but it was first baked in Austria, and its unique shape has a definite meaning. In 1683, an invading army consisting of over 1,000 Ottoman Turks was besieging the Austrian city of Vienna. This was a crucial war, fought by the Holy Roman Empire, led by the Habsburg monarchy and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth against the ravaging armies of the Ottoman Turks. You can call it the high watermark of the Muslim versus Christian wars if you want. The war would last until 1699, at which point the Turks, having lost decisively, pulled their forces out, beginning their long retreat from power and headed toward the end of the Ottoman Empire as a conquering force. A critical moment happened during the siege during which bakers inside the city, working through the night, heard sounds of digging and raised the alarm. This early warning prevented the Turks from breaching the walls of Vienna and helped save the city. Eventually, an army under Poland's King John III reached Vienna and drove the Turks out. The bakers ended up as the heroes of Vienna and decided to celebrate the siege in a remarkable way. According to legend, they copied the crescent moon from their enemy's flag and turned it into a commemorative pastry called Kipfel, K-I-P-F-E-L, which was German for crescent and honored a victory which might never have happened but for the bakers themselves. Kipfels became croissants about 100 years later, in 1770, when 15-year-old Austrian princess Marie Antoinette arrived in France to marry the future king Louis XVI. Parisian bakers started turning out Kipfels in her honor, and the French found themselves so enamored with the new breakfast treat that they adopted it as the croissant, which is French for crescent. All this story lacks is a description of just how the croissant is made, by layering yeast leavened dough with butter, then rolling and folding it several times in succession, then rolling it into a thin sheet in a technique called laminating. The result? A layered, flaky, delicious piece of pastry that would go very well with that next cup of coffee and another episode of 1001 Heroes. But that's only a part of the Siege of Vienna story. Legend also has it that the bagel was born there as well. King John of Poland was widely known as a skilled horseman, and the Viennese bakers, in an effort to show their gratitude for his timely arrival, supposedly created a roll in the shape of a stirrup for him. The Austrian word for stirrup is, drum roll please, bugle, which was eventually anglicized to bagel. Now the dictionary tells us that bagel comes from the Yiddish word bagel, B-E-Y-G-L, which comes from the German word for a ring, which is bogle. So there are a few theories out there. Krakow, Poland, not Vienna, is known as the real home of the bagel now but that still ties in with the original story of King John of Poland freeing Vienna from the siege and returning home with his just reward, 
a baker's dozen of bagels. There are hundreds of stories from World War II that were classified for years and only came to light recently, and this is one. I knew that the U.S. and Germany were in a race to develop the atom bomb, but never knew just how close that race was. Germany was by far the leader in nuclear fission research, and in 1937 their nuclear program was making huge strides under the leadership of Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann. In 1938, they were able to split the atom by bombarding it with neutrons. And surprisingly, even though Hitler and his generals were planning on going to war, they didn't see the implications of this research and were totally oblivious to the fact that Hahn and Strassmann had published their findings in scientific journals, which became available to anyone in the world who was looking. In the U.S., Albert Einstein, who had fled from Germany in 1933 after being ousted from his position as director for the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute because he was a Jew, and who realized the magnitude of Hahn and Strassmann's work, wrote a letter to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt explaining the nature of the danger that was involved, and strongly urged the U.S. president to get involved in the race to build an atomic bomb. Meanwhile, as the 40s progressed and Germany found itself occupying a good portion of Europe, they found themselves in need of two key components to develop the bomb, the first being uranium, which Germany was extracting from the Belgian Congo, and two, heavy water, known as deuterium oxide, which could only be found at Norway's hydroelectric plant at Vermark, which Germany now controlled. By June of 1942, Britain's MI6 received news that the Nazis were on the threshold of actually having an atom bomb at their disposal, so they contacted Professor Leif Tronsdat, the chemist who had helped build the heavy water plant at Vermark and he arranged for a trusted Norwegian agent named Einar Skinnerland to parachute into the rugged, desolate plateau in southern Norway where the plant was located. To say this was an extremely dangerous mission would be an understatement. Skinnerland was able to make contact with the chief engineer at the plant, who confirmed their worst fears. Germany was rapidly increasing the production of heavy water. Meanwhile, the U.S. had launched its own nuclear fission program under the guidance of Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, who, with his team, achieved the first controlled atomic chain reaction on December 2, 1942, at the University of Chicago. If you're thinking all this was done in some multi-million dollar secure facility, think again. Actually, this took place under the spectator stands at Stagg Field, an abandoned football field at the University of Chicago. That experiment led quickly to the birth of the super-secret Manhattan Project, and secure facilities were built in Tennessee and Los Alamos, New Mexico, but not so secure that Germany didn't find out. The FBI intercepted a missive from Abwehr headquarters in Germany, saying that, quote, There is reason to believe that the scientific works for the utilization of atomic energy are being driven forward in the United States. And from that point, the race was on. In February of 1944, the U.S. 8th Air Force heavily bombed the heavy water producing plant in Norway. But Hermann Göring had ordered the evacuation of the facility's machines and all the heavy water they could salvage in barrels. And immediately plans were put into place to load those drums of water and fluids and fluid on a train at Ryukin, which would then transfer it to a ferry called the Hydro. MI6 agents in Norway heard about the evacuation, and a James Bond-style mission was put in place. One MI6 agent, Newt Hockenlid, was able to board the hydro for a routine crossing of Lake Tinsjo two days before the train with its precious cargo was due to arrive. 
Newt was able to learn that the lake was 1,300 feet deep near the middle. If the ferry could be sunk there, the Nazis would never be able to retrieve the barrels. On the evening of February 19th, Hawkenlid and two of his men snuck aboard the docked hydro, which, incredibly, had been left unguarded. The agents planted and set time bombs, which were set to detonate 45 minutes after the vessel shoved off. At 10 a.m. the next morning, the ferry, with its precious cargo of heavy water, now loaded aboard, shoved off, headed for the other side of the lake and a waiting train. But it never made it. At 10.45, a terrific roar was heard as the ferry exploded and all its cargo sank to the bottom of Lake Tinsjo, along with Adolf Hitler's hope for an atom bomb that would bring him world domination. On August of 1945, the U.S. dropped its first payload on Hiroshima, Japan, and when Japan's Emperor Hirohito still refused to surrender days later, they dropped the second bomb on Nagasaki, finally bringing an end to years of fighting in the Pacific and an end to world domination for Japan. All thanks largely to Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi, and Britain's MI6 intelligence capabilities, not to mention all their courageous agents who risked and sometimes gave their lives. The American Revolution had its share of heroes, both sung and unsung, and one of the most colorful was a young man whose name was Peter Francisco. He came to America on a boat, being literally dropped on a dock at City Point, which is today's Hopewell, Virginia, south of Richmond, on the James River. He was four years old at the time. It was guessed that he was of aristocratic Portuguese descent, and possibly born in the Azores. A kindly man named Judge Anthony Winston heard about him and took him in and raised him, teaching him the concepts of liberty as espoused by his nephew Patrick Henry. Francisco learned to read and write and was president in St. John's Church in Richmond when Patrick Henry gave his famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech. When the revolution broke out, Francisco, although in his late teens, was eager to fight, being well-trained with broadsword and gun, and being huge in physical stature with enough strength and courage for two. He joined the 10th Virginia Regiment and appeared in ten engagements with the British from New York to the Carolinas, being wounded five times. Nearing the end of the Revolutionary War, his exploits had become campfire talk throughout the Continental Forces. Like the time he slew 11 redcoats at Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina, with his fearsome extra-long broadsword. Or the time he carried a 1,110-pound cannon on his back during the Patriot Retreat at Camden, South Carolina. And Francisco was there at Brandywine and Germantown and Monmouth, as well as the capture of Stony Point. At Camden, he saved Colonel Mayo's life by killing a British officer who was in the process of taking Mayo's life as the battle came to a close. And at Stony Point, he was the second man over the wall of the fort, fighting back against British bayonets. He was wounded at Guilford Courthouse, and upon returning to Virginia on foot, he was just in time for a run-in at Ward's Tavern in Amelia County with Bannister Tarleton's dragoons. Francisco had walked in for a cool drink, only to find himself surrounded by British troopers one of whom demanded that Francisco give him his knee-buckles and watch. Francisco was then disarmed. He answered that the cavalryman would have to help himself, and the trooper, surrounded by his eight armed companions, and believing that Francisco wouldn't dare raise a hand, knelt down to remove the knee-buckles, at which point Francisco drew the trooper's sword from its sheath, killing the trooper with a single blow to the head. He then quickly retrieved his broadsword and went outside, where he was accosted by two dragoons, one on foot, and one on horseback, who was pointing a musket at Francisco's head. 
he pulled the mounted trooper off his horse and killed them both. At that point a company of dragoons arrived, and Francisco drew their attention by shouting toward the woods for his men to appear, distracting the British for the few seconds he needed to mount a horse and ride out. Tarleton, who was leading the company, was enraged and sent 100 men after Francisco, but he made good on his escape. The encounter at Ward's Tavern was later memorialized in a famous engraving. Francisco survived the revolution and later married three times. He was twice widowed and tried his hand as a farmer, a blacksmith, and operator of a tavern and country store before finally finding his niche as a sergeant-at-arms for the Virginia House of Delegates in his later life. The states of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, both having significant Portuguese populations, marked March 15th as Peter Francisco Day in memory of the Guilford Courthouse affair and Virginia joined by also commemorating that day in his name in 1972. Peter Francisco was a great patriot and a hero whose name, like the names of many from those days, has faded into history, but will never be completely forgotten. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. One story we have coming up in the future is that of Annie Oakley. She was a sharpshooter and performer in Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows, the highest paid performer in his employ, and she entertained crowds worldwide with her shooting ability, which included stunts like shooting a cigar which her husband Frank Butler, also a Wild West show performer, held between his teeth, and hitting dimes thrown in the air. She was a true marksman and a huge name in her time. She was performing one of her sharpshooting acts with her husband Frank, when the show was in Berlin, before the start of World War I, when she was interrupted by a man in the audience. There were thousands packed into the stadium that day, and the crowd got quiet quickly when the man stood up and, gesturing emphatically, began urging her to shoot the cigar from his mouth. She wasn't about to turn down what was obviously a challenge, so she motioned for the man to come down from the stands and take a standing position at the exact distance that her husband had been standing. She was understandably nervous. She had not been pre-warned about this. This was not a part of her act. Her mind drifted to the few shots of whiskey she had enjoyed the night before, and she hoped she was steady. She and Frank could laugh it off, but this man was a stranger, and the crowd apparently knew who it was. It turned out to be the newly crowned monarch, young Kaiser Wilhelm, the man who, although unknown to her at the time, would be starting World War I, and against whose forces Americans would be killed by the tens of thousands. The man drew a cigarette, not a cigar, from a gold case he drew from his breast pocket, and lit it, standing with his face sideways to Annie, the cigarette clenched between his teeth. She took aim carefully and fired, knocking the ashes off the end of the cigarette. Later, when World War I broke out, the Kaiser, who played a major role in fomenting the war, received a letter from Frank Butler, Annie's husband, saying that Annie would like the chance now to take a second shot at him. No reply was ever received. In her memoirs, Annie wrote, If I shot the Kaiser, I might have saved the lives of millions of soldiers. She was a stand-up person and loved by all who knew her. We're looking forward to doing a full episode on her life and times in the near future. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow Or 
guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line just waiting for bread? Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done, brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower, up to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done, brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, gee, we look swell, full of that Yankee doodly-dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with the drum. Say, don't you remember, they called me Al, it was Al all the time. Why don't you remember I'm your pal? Say, buddy, can you spare a dime? The song Brother Can You Spare a Dime, also sung as Buddy Can You Spare a Dime, is one of the best-known American songs of the Great Depression. Written in 1931 by lyricist E.Y. Yip Harburg and composer Jake Gorney, Brother Can You Spare a Dime was part of the 1932 musical New Americana. The melody is based on a Russian lullaby Gorney heard as a child. It became best known, however, through recordings by Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley, with Crosby's version becoming pretty much the anthem for the Great Depression in America in the 1930s. Yip Harburg's birth name was Isidore Hochberg, and he had lost everything in the Depression when the stock market crash wiped out his electrical appliance business, leaving him thousands in debt with no way to support his wife and two children. He would later say, I found myself broke. All I had left was my pencil. He got in touch with an old high school buddy who was working his way up in showbiz and told him he had decided to quit the business world and become a songwriter. His old buddy's name happened to be Ira Gershwin, who had already come a long way in earning a reputation as being one of the greatest songwriter lyricists in America. Ira told him that it was about time he put his talents to good use and introduced Hochberg to a man named Joe Gurney, and the two began writing together. Hochberg had Americanized his name to E.Y. Harburg and was known as Yip by his friends. They would sometimes sit on benches in New York City's Central Park to get their inspiration, and one day that inspiration came in the form of a hobo who approached them asking, Buddy, can you spare a dime? In that moment, Yip had a vision of all the homeless, jobless men who were in the same fix, men who had just a few years ago built railroads and cities and fought in World War I and now couldn't find jobs because there were none. The lyrics, Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Brother, can you spare a dime? Were powerful. 
These men had made an investment in their country, and they were getting nothing in return. The song became a huge hit, and it wasn't the only one for Yip Harburg. He was best known for writing all the lyrics to all the songs in The Wizard of Oz. Maybe it took a man whose life had been turned upside down by a sudden introduction to poverty to come up with an anthem that pulled people through the Depression and better times ahead. Just one of millions of great American stories. And here's another story, this time from the French-Indian Wars, and it's about a lost artifact called the Silver Madonna. Those of you who watched the TV miniseries Turned might remember the shadowy backwoods character named Robert Rogers, who for a while headed his own band of cutthroat Indians and loyalists in return for payments on scalps delivered to the British. They were called Rogers Rangers, and sometimes the Queen's Rangers, and they were one of the many dangers that all Patriot colonists had to watch their backs for, especially when traveling. Rogers was raised in the wilderness and knew the ways of the Indians, learning how to speak their language, hunt, and kill from an early age. He served as a scout early in the French-Indian War, and quickly earned a reputation as a bloodthirsty mercenary, rising quickly on the British roster as the man to call when they needed quick, bloody work done that couldn't be pinned to them. For a few pieces of silver, there wasn't anything that Rogers wouldn't do, and his Indians and mercenaries worked for nothing save plunder and scalps. By mid-1758, Rogers had been promoted to major and commanded 600 men. General Jeffrey Amherst, who at the time commanded Fort Ticonderoga near the New York-Vermont border, was growing concerned about the number of raids being launched by the French and their Indian allies, and he wanted a retaliatory strike that would burn fear into the hearts and minds of the French and their friends, in this case, the Abenakis, whose main village was called St. Francis. Amherst ordered a hit and told Rogers to take no prisoners. It was a village consisting of small European-style homes in the center of which was a church with a Catholic priest, and in the village lived a few hundred people, mostly, on that day, October 4, 1759, old men, women, and children. That village, located on the south bank of the St. Lawrence River, just over the Canadian border, contained a mixture of tribes that had been pretty much wiped out in New England, along with a handful of whites who had been captured and adopted Indian ways, or joined at their own wishes. Rogers and his force surrounded the village in the early morning hours and attacked at the sound of his musket shot, killing all the inhabitants in a blood frenzy that spared no one within a period of less than half an hour. The Catholic priest was dragged out in front of his small church and shot. During the melee, two dozen of Rogers' killers entered the chapel and began filling plunder bags with golden chalices and candlesticks and anything that looked valuable. Upon reaching the altar, several of the rangers halted, stunned and staring at a remarkable statue which was reflecting the flickering flames from outside as the houses and village were put to the torch. The silver Madonna was two feet high, made of pure silver, and showed the Virgin Mary holding her baby. The men hesitated for a moment, then grabbed it, took it outside, and secured it to the back of a sturdy pack horse. The attack force soon left the burning village, setting out mostly on foot, leading their pack horses, headed for the safety of Fort Ticonderoga, where Rogers could collect his bounty for scalps and stolen booty from the British commander. Two hours into their march, however, a rear-guard scout rushed to the front of the column and informed Rogers that a force of mounted French soldiers, accompanied by about a hundred Indians, was approaching at a rapid rate. These were Abenaki warriors who had heard of the killing of their families and were seeking revenge. 
Rogers split his forces, heading west toward the colonies with half his men, while the remainder dispersed into the woods, headed east. This group had the pack horses. They were all to meet at Fort Ticonderoga within two to four days. The French force saw that Rogers had split his forces, and they, having more men, also split theirs, and caught up with both of Rogers' forces soon after. Stragglers at the end of the columns were killed first, and Rogers' forces were taking heavy casualties. The ones that were headed east getting the worst of it. A huge snowstorm broke loose during the fight with this group. The group with the pack horse carrying the silver Madonna crossed a shallow lake, then continued in a southeast direction toward the Connecticut River. The group of soldiers continued plodding through the Vermont woods and staying ahead of the French, but desertion and starvation and cold were breaking them down. By the time they reached the Connecticut River, there were only four men remaining, as legend has it, and they were completely out of food. All they had was their guns and one pack horse, the one with the silver Madonna. One of their men, a sergeant named Amos Parsons, was familiar with the area they were traveling through, and told his companions he could lead them out of danger if they could cross the Connecticut River, which they did, entering the present-day town of Lancaster, New Hampshire. From there they followed the Israel River upstream and into the foothills of the White Mountains. The French had given up on them and turned back, but they didn't know it. Parsons and his companions were still moving deeper into the woods and higher and higher in altitude, and for three more days they slogged through the foothills, then the mountains, but they were starving and finally reduced to making soup out of strips of their buckskins. Two of the men came down with fever, and Parsons was one of them. Waking up in a delirium, he saw the silver Madonna near the edge of the shelter and focused all his pain on that statue, blaming it for cursing them with bad luck. He grabbed it and threw it down the steep bank, watching it bounce off the hard granite walls of the mountain they were on until it fell into the Connecticut River below. Parsons then went out of his mind, and the last his companion saw of him was his back as he ran screaming down the hill, pulling at his hair. Only one man survived the ordeal, making his way down the mountain a few days later to where a family of woodcutters found him and nursed him back to health. But only for a few months, after which he too lost his mind and died but not before sharing what had happened with the woodcutters, a group of which later backtracked the man to the cave in the side of the mountain, where inside they found the decayed remains of two men and a pack horse. They also walked along the riverbank searching for any sign of the silver Madonna, but found no sign. They returned to their settlement empty-handed. As far as anyone knows, the silver Madonna has never been found, and it still lies at the gravel bottom of the Connecticut River maybe having been moved southward many miles over the years, or maybe still mired deep in what was and is a very soft, muddy river bottom in most places in that stretch of the river. Major Rogers survived the French attack and went on to fight in the remainder of the French-Indian War and in the Revolution, where he continued to do the bloody work that the British refused to do themselves. The Silver Madonna, valued by collectors to be worth millions today, remains at the bottom of the Connecticut River as a forgotten relic of times and wars gone by. Lastly, a story about a songwriter named Steve Goodman. He was sure he had a hit song in his hand the night he cornered Arlo Guthrie as he was packing up his guitars after performing at the Quiet Night Folk Club in Chicago, and Guthrie was thinking just what you'd be thinking if you'd been on the road and wrapping up after a long performance. Oh no, this guy wants me to listen to his song, and he thinks it's great. It was two in the morning for crying out loud. But here was the guy, and Guthrie didn't want to appear rude. So he said, Okay, 
Tell you what, if you buy me a beer, I'll listen as long as it takes until I finish it. Is that fair? The guy left and miraculously came back a few minutes later somehow producing a cold beer. He then produced a guitar and the song started pouring out. Good morning, America. How are you? Don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. And right there, Guthrie knew he had been given the song of his career. Steve Goodman became a talented and prolific songwriter, although his career was tragically cut short by leukemia at age 36. As for the song, The City of New Orleans, it's been covered by 109 different artists. Goodman had written the song while riding on the Illinois Central one Monday morning while he and his wife Nancy were on their way to visit their 93-year-old grandmother in southern Illinois. Goodman would later tell a reporter, Everything in the song really happened. And for those of you who never heard it, we'll leave a link to the song in the show notes for you. Meanwhile, thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We've got a lot of great stories coming up. Next week, the story of the unanswered letter, which I think you're going to enjoy very, very much. It's a story about a Jewish family during the Holocaust that found themselves with no way out of Germany and needing a pass from anyone in America who might see the letter that they wrote and sent to their namesakes in Los Angeles. You'll hear all about that incredible story next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Meanwhile, some recent reviews. The first one, five stars. Look forward to it every week. Awesome. One of the best podcasts. Down from Tim Tipton 1, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, outstanding. Five stars. John Hagedorn's storytelling abilities are unparalleled. He has a way of making you feel you're in the same room with the protagonist. Each podcast is consistently excellent, but the stories of Joan of Arc and later Eugene Billard were so good, I was on the edge of my seat. This is the gold standard of adventure podcasting. Down from George852, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, wide range of interesting topics. A great podcast which presents an interesting array of subject matter, some of which I've heard about, while others I never knew. All are well done and seem well researched. Keep them coming. I look forward to more. And this one, a great listen. I really enjoy listening to this podcast. Gives me something to listen to while mowing large properties. It's well-paced, entertaining, and fascinating, which shouldn't be taken for granted, believe me. Down from H. Myers 8, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, doesn't get better than John's podcast. The consistent quality of histories and mysteries has long been a gold standard for me when selecting other podcasts for my library. Hence the compact size of my library. Thanks so much for all your work. Maynard Dave, that one from D.P. Jefferson, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, the best podcast ever, five stars. I love the sub that sank a train. Your biggest fan ever. P.S. How long does one episode take to write at all? P.S. I'm trying to listen to all of them. P.S. I like the background music, too. What's your favorite episode? Your logo is well drawn. That one from that one from Cool Dude, Apple Podcast, U.S. And to answer how long does one episode take to write at all? Depends on the length of the episode. Some require a lot of research, and that research can take hours, not to mention the hours spent sometimes checking out videos and reading other stories, and reading entire books, and just trying to get a feel for the subject. So some can take a lot more than others. I would say an average of three hours for a 1001 Heroes podcast. Then after you write it, you need to do the audio, and then you need to edit that audio. 
that takes some time as well. Then then we have to do all the work it takes to put it out there. But for me, I love what I'm doing, so I don't think of the time. Thank you for your comment about the background music. It's music that we got at the very start, and it's called A Hero is Born, and it was done by a composer named John Wright, and I paid for the rights to it. What's your favorite episode? Oh, I've got a lot of stories that I really, really loved to get into and do. So many, it's almost impossible. But I really liked Bonnie and Clyde. There was a lot that went into that story. A lot of the story surprised me. And when you hear the sound effects in Bonnie and Clyde, whether it's a Browning submachine gun or whether it's a BAR, those are the actual guns that they used and the actual sounds that those guns made. So we tried to make that as realistic as possible. Same thing when we did the Battle of Midway. The different types of airplanes that those carriers used as part, of, as part of their fighting force. Those sound effects of those planes were the original ones as well. At any rate, thank you so much, all of you, for being great fans, for sharing our show with others. It's great to have this opportunity to be with you every week. I'm looking forward to next week and all the weeks ahead. Thanks so much for being great fans. And we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe.